Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to The C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, takes a look at how clean energy is boosting the economy. Do you want to grow jobs in America? Check out the solar industry. There are now more people employed in the solar industry than in the oil and gas extraction industry in America. Or how about settling into a fast, snappy new car? When you experience electric drive, you want more of it. It's way more fun. It's quiet. It's not stinky. You don't have to go to a gas station. And so people embrace that. Catching the rays for an electric future. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. You know that cartoon where the guy has a light bulb over his head and then, bing, it goes on? Well, America is having a collective light bulb moment these days, and it's powered by solar energy. Solar panels are 50% cheaper than just five years ago, and energy from wind is looking just as bright. Today, we're taking a look at the explosion of clean energy alternatives, how we're pumping it into our new cars, and our plans for carrying it over a new electric grid. Greg's first guests are all working to get solar panels on rooftops across the country. Hal Harvey is CEO of the consulting group Energy Innovation. Danny Kennedy is Managing Director at the California Clean Energy Fund, a private equity and venture capital firm. And Lyndon Rive is co-founder and CEO of Solar City, one of the country's largest installers of rooftop solar systems. Here's our conversation about sunroofs. Hal Harvey, let's begin with you. You've said that there are two Americas, not a red America and a blue America, but a green America and a brown America. Tell us what you mean. <laughs> so 60% of the nation's carbon goes through monopoly pipes and wires. And those are regulated individually by state public utilities commissions. Those public utilities commissioners get to decide whether your utility bill lands on green choices or brown choices. And in states like California, which has near one-third renewable energy and will soon have 50% renewable energy, they're landing on green choices. But there are other states. Nevada recently made a horrible reversal, and they're insisting, in effect, that your money go to brown choices. So this is substantially driven state by state. Lyndon Rive, there is some areas where clean energy is playing defense. Nevada's one. In Georgia, the state recently reduced incentives for electric vehicles. Sales plummeted. So tell us about where you're playing offense and where you're playing defense. The, the amount of attacks coming on to the uh, solar industry is insane. Countries are investing now to, to make this change. 
but you have to enable the technology for the public to be actually use it. But if the monopoly is protecting their infrastructure and not allowing that change to occur, it's really difficult to, to make that happen. And Nevada is a classic case. The industry has done a great job of moving forward, reducing costs, making it more affordable, allowing more and more uh, lower-income neighborhoods to, to go solar. But then with one swipe of the pan, the PUC decimated the solar industry in Nevada. There is no solar industry. It's, it's gone. And uh, it's a shame, especially when it's a state where most of the energy is imported and most of it's coal and natural gas. Danny Kennedy, there is some upside here. Solar jobs are growing. Solar deployment is growing. Tell us the, the positive side of the story. Well, the truth is we've been succeeding as a clean energy industry now for over a decade, particularly in job creation. There are now more people employed in the solar industry than in the oil and gas extraction industry in America. There are now more solar installers, just that occupation, half of the value chain, if you will, than there are coal miners in America. And that's at less than 2% of electricity supplied. So as we grow, we will employ many hundreds of thousands more Americans. So great news story there. Plus, we're lowering costs of electricity for families and businesses across the country. Plus, we're cleaning the air and reducing the risks of climate change. So a lot of good news, and that's a global story as well. Hal Harvey, there are places where people can make choices, various colors of green. Is that happening across the United States? There are a number of electricity markets that have opened up to customer choice in different ways. And one interesting example, actually, is Texas. So the first renewable portfolio standard in the country was signed by Governor George W. Bush, They met that with wind in no time whatsoever. They doubled it, and they beat the records on that. Texas now has more than twice as much wind as California. It was initiated by policy. It was enabled by Texas's willingness to put in transmission lines to the wind field. So that was a certainty that a wind developer could look at and use right away. And wind companies could sell directly to the customers, and many customers preferred this because the long-term price of wind is exactly the same as the short-term price of wind once the windmill's built. Zero fuel cost. That's an incredible advantage. So there are many ways to get at this, but fundamentally, public policy is an enabler or inhibitor, and the difference uh, is clear in the market. So solar is what, 2% maybe of U.S. electricity now? What's needed to get it to 5%, 10%? What's the path? Yeah, this is where government can play a really important role. Having a policy that enables making clean energy easier, let's not make it harder, but we often find when we start getting traction, uh, incumbents leverage their policy relationships to slow down the adoption. Like, oh, wait, this is actually starting to work. We're actually starting to solve the problem. Let's make it harder. And so if they do it right, growth occurs. We solve the problem. If they do it wrong, it decimates the market and there is no renewable energy. Uh, Hal Harvey, California is often seen as a clean energy leader, and yet California's success is not secured for the future. A new governor in California in 2018 could go in a very different direction. Is that true? California enjoys what I call a virtuous cycle. So when you create good policy, you create good industries behind it, and you create workers for those industries and customers, and they become a new political force. One of my favorite policy design principles is continuous improvement. So when Governor Brown was the youngest governor in California's history, he instituted a very progressive building code that self-tightens every three years. And so new products came along, better windows, better air conditioners, better roofing materials, better insulation, and buildings got more and more efficient. Every three years, the code tightened up. One political step, continuous improvement. So continuous improvement is, is a magic bullet, and that's one of the things that has to be built into legislation. And that's where we're headed in California, and that's where we're headed nationally. They're all going to be green states because nobody wants to overpay for energy perennially. Nobody wants to be permanently dependent on fossil fuels. Nobody wants to subject their kids to asthma and particulate pollution. So there are leader states that take risks, but there are technologies which enable all states to come on board. Hal Harvey, you've said that America has become somewhat of a petrostate dependent on resource extraction. What do you mean by that? We had an amazing boom, first of natural gas from fracking, and then from oil from fracking. And the U.S. became one of the dominant world oil producers after years of decline. And there are some parts of Texas and most of North Dakota and other states, Pennsylvania, for example, where there were fantastic revenues and a lot of jobs created. There's an environmental problem to this, of course, but the economic problem if you become so dependent on those natural resources that you fall into the trap where we find Russia, Venezuela, 
Iran, where if you can't sell that oil at a good price, your economy tanks. So it's perfectly fine to responsibly use our natural resources. It's a terrible idea to get addicted to natural resource extraction. It's called the resource curse, and we should avoid it. If you're just joining us, we're talking today with Lyndon Rive from Solar City, Danny Kennedy from CalCEF, and Hal Harvey from Energy Innovation. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about the Paris deal. Hal Harvey, what do you think of the Paris deal? Is it just a gesture, or is it, is it a meaningful step forward? It's a real deal. The most important thing about Paris is that everybody came to the table with a plan to decarbonize their economy. What Paris did was sanctify the political movement and create momentum. Where we have to turn our attention now, and this is absolutely crucial, is helping ensure that they end up with the right building codes, the right utility policy, and the end to subsidy of fossil fuels. So it's the nuts and bolts, sector by sector, policy actions that go away from Paris in the top 20 countries that determine our climate future. It's that simple. Lyndon Rive, the Paris deal is going to affect solar cities' growth, going to affect the solar industry? Absolutely. When you look at developing countries, solar is clearly something that can help them. The big challenge now in developing countries is commitments from the developed countries to help with the financing. And so when access to the financing becomes available, you'll see a lot more deployment of renewable energy in, in the developing countries. Danny Kennedy, where can an average investor put some money into a mutual fund? They want to invest in solar. They did that in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. People got burned badly. Where can people do it today? I'm obviously not going to provide investment advice on the radio, but uh, (laughs) there's plenty of good companies out there, plenty of funds uh, that retail investors can actually get involved with, and there are going to be increasing flows of bonds and various forms of debt to get behind this amazing capital flow which will be unleashed. There's some estimates that suggest, you know, the amount of money flowing into renewable energy will go from something like $6 trillion in the next 25 years to 9 or $12 trillion. So are there opportunities for investors? Yes. And that's jobs, economic growth, equity for families. It's all good news. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. <clears throat> I was at a panel at the Cleantech Forum where they were talking about robots and automation in the industrial force. Can you speak to how that fits into this picture? Is there a tension there between robots and job creation? So the number one job creator in the solar industry is actually delivering solar on somebody's house. So so even if you automate the full factory, you're still going to create a lot of jobs. And installers make more money. It is highly distributed. It's not concentrated. So everybody gets the benefit of the job creation versus just one specific location. And so our factory, Buffalo, is is going to make about a gigawatt. The forecast is about 1,500 people in that factory. But today, we install about a gigawatt as a company, and we have 15,000 employees. And those installation jobs can't be shipped offshore to China. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi there. Oliver Harris here from Tower Power. Uh, Just focusing on some of the poorest parts of the world where people don't have access to energy at all, what's your view on the role of distributed renewable energy microgrids to provide the power that they need? Danny Kennedy. There's going to be an enormous growth over the next several decades. So of that sort of multi-trillion dollar market, much of it is going to be bottom of the pyramid, if you will, bringing light and other electricity services to people of Asia, the half of India that doesn't have electricity to date, and all of Africa, including the burgeoning population there. So it's an enormous opportunity to do good and uplift lives. And it's already booming. And hopefully that will just grow globally as we deliver this thing we all take for granted called electricity, but which can really improve people's lives across the globe. Yeah, we've invested in a company called Off Grid Electric in Tanzania. And the model is displacing kerosene. Small solar panel, uh, four or six LED lights, little battery. It provides a far better form of light, way healthier and way safer at a lower price than just burning kerosene. So you think of the, the sales model, you, you're coming home one day and you've got your neighbor with this nice light hanging out versus you and the, with your little kerosene lamp and you ask your neighbor, how'd you get that? And, and your neighbor tells you it's cheaper than the kerosene. So it's going to be massive, massive growth in that sector. Let's go to our last question. Welcome. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about Paris and you know, how to make sure there's action after the talks. And uh, Mr. Harvey, I'd love for you to talk to us about how you think countries are going to keep each other, you know, keep each other honest to their own commitments. One of the elements of tension in the Paris talks was this question of transparency, monitoring, and verifying these changes. And the U.S. fielded a pretty brilliant team of negotiators and um, made great progress on this. And I think China's 
interest and transparency has been an enormous step in the right way. What's more important, or at least as important, is that the citizens of those countries demand increased energy efficiency and increased renewable energy, cleaner air, and reduced climate risk. Because it's the domestic political pressure, not the international political pressure, that's going to make the big difference. And then finally, Copenhagen was all about burden sharing, and Paris was all about opportunity. And that's a 180 switch. So you don't need to have such draconian measures when it turns out to be in your economic interest to do the right thing. It's not a done deal. It's not a coasting slope downhill all the way. I don't want to be sanguine about this, but the wind is definitely at our back. Greg Dalton has been talking about the role of government, utilities, and business in greening the grid with Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation, Danny Kennedy, Managing Director at the California Clean Energy Fund, and Lyndon Rive, co-founder and CEO of Solar City. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. So what are we doing with all that green energy? Well, in some places, it's powering our cars. Electric vehicles, pure electrics, and cars that run on both electricity and gasoline are still only a fraction of America's fleet. But some states are determined to change that. And California is leading the way. For insight into the new car culture, Greg talked to Sherry Boschert, co-founder of the advocacy group Plug in America. Her book, Plug in Hybrids, The Cars That Will Recharge America, anticipated a faster switch to electric cars when it came out 10 years ago. Eileen Tutt is executive director of the California Electric Transportation Coalition, a group of companies in the electric vehicle industry. She's a former deputy secretary of the California EPA. And Charlie Vogelheim is host of Motor Trend Audio, a weekly podcast. He was vice president of J.D. Power & Associates and an editor at Blue Book. Here's our conversation about clean and quiet cars. Sherry Boschert, uh, in the 1990s, California decided they should push something called zero emission vehicles. And from that chapter to about 2011, there were, what, six or 7,000 of those cars sold. The California Air Resources Board required the top seven automakers to make 2% of their sales in the state be zero emission by 1998, 5% by 2001, and 10% by 2003. Those were really great goals, and it freaked out the car companies completely. Nineteen states adopted parts of California's regulations, so now you've got a movement that really is pushing car companies. The car companies fought back. They kept suing. In the early 2000s, the Bush administration backed the car companies, and the California Air Resources Board decided that they had to water down the regulations. And so they cut the zero-emission vehicle mandate to 2% of sales, and they kept scaling it back and scaling it back. This started 25 years ago, and the market share of electric cars today is below where regulators wanted to be 15 years ago. And sales have been less than some people were predicting even five years ago. Anthony Eggert was here when he was at the California Energy Commission, and this is what some people were thinking about where we would be five years ago. Um, we, we looked at... Uh, I would say, an optimistic scenario of potentially a million vehicles here in the state by 2020. And I think that is, that is plausible, but it's very aggressive. million vehicles by 2020. Eileen Tut, where are we today in California? We have about 160,000 vehicles, and so we have four more years to do 840,000 vehicles. I believe we can make it to a million, but I think the challenge right now is all about the gas prices. But I guess I'm still hopeful that, that we'll get close to a million. I think it's great to have that good target. Everybody's pulling together to try to encourage consumers to make you know, the greenest choice out there, which is a plug-in electric vehicle. 
Charlie Vogelheim, you are one of the few people in the country that's probably driven all of these cars. <laughs> Tell us about the state of the market. There's, what, 22 or 25 cars on the market now with a plug? It's both the all-electric and then the plug-in electric, as you're saying, which are you know versions of a hybrid vehicle. And it is a great driving experience. When you get all of the torque right up front, a lot of the mechanical issues you have with engines, internal combustion, aren't there in an all-electric car. You know, you don't really ever have an engine light go on. <laughs> because there isn't the engine. So those aspects of it are are encouraging, but uh, unfortunately, the fact that an affordable electric car will go at or under 100 miles on a charge, it offers a little bit of range anxiety still. I mean, we're all trying to get to point A to point B, and we're storing the power, in this case in the form of a battery. That is hard to compete against the gallon of diesel fuel. Until we can get the battery capabilities up a little bit more and or the cost a little bit lower, that's what we have to, you know bang up against. Eileen Tut, you have some teenage drivers in your house. How do they deal with range anxiety? Because when you first go electric, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure. Am I going to run out of gas? They love taking those cars right up to the edge. And my <laughs> daughter and son would bring home that car and it would have one mile. In fact, <laughs> one time my son pulled up and the car shut down right as he was at zero. So that is so exciting to a teenager. <laughs> it's like one more risk that they can take and your mom isn't going to kill you for it. And they don't have a transmission. If you haven't driven an all-electric car, you may not know this. There's no transmission. So the maintenance on these cars is pretty much zero, which is another good thing if you have a teenager, by the way. Charlie Vogelheim, what do you see in the product pipeline? What exciting cars are we going to see on the road the next three to five years that are either electric or some kind of hybrid? Are we going to see some cool new stuff coming our way? Well, there's some very cool stuff, but I've got to say I'm very excited about the Bolt coming out. I was excited when the Leaf came out for the simple fact that it is a mass-marketed all-electric car. And everybody's making noise. Is it going to work? Is it going to be great? Range anxiety. Until they did it, until people had them and were driving them in numbers, then we got to find out what that was all about. AAA in Southern California has a truck specifically for electric cars, the Catch and Ian all that are stranded because of range anxiety. They've never used it. I'm excited about the Bolt because it continues the conversation and the realities of using these electric cars. So I'm excited about that as the next step. We should say that that's a $35,000 car, 200-mile range, similar to the Tesla Model 3. Charlie Vogelheim, what else do you see on the horizon other than than the Bolt? Are we going to see more luxury car makers being serious about plug-in hybrids? Porsche, Audi, all the high-end cars have to be there to match Tesla. Yeah, so the Tesla and the Tesla S, it's a fabulous sports car. It's got a lot of technology. It's a a roller coaster, not on rails. And so that being said, yes, the other manufacturers are looking at going, we can possibly do this. Tesla did a remarkable job from the ground up and how that car drives. Porsche is looking at it, how big is really this market? Yes, we can do it, but there's a lot of R&D that goes into a lot of costs and how many people are really out there. When we finally get the Tesla to roll out a couple new models, I think it'll be a great indicator to size and demand. Sherry Bosher. I am pleasantly surprised that consumers have embraced all electric, even more than plug-in hybrids. But when you experience electric drive, you want more of it. It's way more fun. It's quiet. It's not stinky. You don't have to go to a gas station. And so people embrace that instead of the plug-in hybrids. Sherry Bosher, let's talk about advertising. Some people say that Detroit doesn't advertise electric cars. They don't sell them because they don't advertise them. Well, and this has been a criticism since the 90s, since they first started producing them. You didn't see the commercials with the sexy babe draped over the car. You know, you didn't see the electric car powering up the mountain and into the wilderness like you do in common car commercials. There are some commercials out there. There's Nissan commercials, there's Volt commercials, but they're few and far between. And car dealers have this inherent conflict. If you ever try and go in and talk to a car dealer, I want to see your plug-in car, nine times out of ten, they'll try and misdirect you. And Here's this gas model. Wouldn't you rather buy this? And the reason they do that is they make money off sales and parts and oil change and everything that's else. Right. Right? It's after-sales service. Car dealers don't make most of their money from sales. It's the other stuff, and you don't have to do that other stuff with electric cars. Another aspect of that, Charlie Vogelheim, is the journalism media. Consumer Reports recently announced the best cars of 2016. There was no mention of any EVs. Motor trend, car and driver, road and track, cell, performance, power. And so uh, if you could self-critique the industry in terms of its promotion of performance, although EVs are really fun to drive. Yeah, yes. 
current issue of Motor Trend has a comparo with the new, I think it's the Volt versus the uh, Toyota Prius, toe-to-toe, and Motor Trend has a real MPG website where they are testing all vehicles, hybrid and otherwise, against what the EPA tests show versus what the real road is. But the true car aficionados love the power, love the sound, love the noise, the visceral sound of the high-revving engines racing past them. That's part of the, the racing scene to them. And it's an interesting thing to think about. How do you replace that? Can you put speakers up and it can make whatever sound you want? It could sound like a Ferrari. It could sound like galloping horses. It could sound like, I don't know, because there was always noise associated with it. And maybe there isn't in an all-electric family. One quick thought. Sure. Since Charlie mentioned a website where you can compare performance of vehicles, I want to put in a plug for Sierra Club, which has a website where you can compare the cleanness of vehicles, even plug-in vehicles, because a lot of people have this misconception, you know, electricity, you know, it's dirtier than gasoline. Well, electricity made from coal is dirty. Electricity made from natural gas is cleaner. Electricity made from solar is clean. So you can go to the Sierra Club website tell it where you live and compare plug-in hybrids, all electric, gas, and see which is the cleanest car because that's what really counts. Eileen Tut. Even electricity made from coal is cleaner than gasoline. So it's much better to go with solar or renewable energy, but even if you generate your electricity from coal, given the regulations on coal today, it's going to be cleaner than, than Will using be, gasoline. But there, I think there's some debate whether a car that runs on electricity provided by coal today is cleaner than gasoline. I think there, there's be some real debate about that. We're talking about electric vehicles at Climate One with Eileen Tut from the California Electric Transportation Coalition, Sherry Boschert from Plug in America, and Charlie Vogelheim from Motor Trend Podcast. I'm Greg Dalton. Sherry Boschert, Tesla has done an amazing thing. Five years ago, 10 years ago, the people who liked EVs might have been engineers, might have been hippies or environmentalists, and now EVs are seen as the status symbol of Silicon Valley. The image has changed dramatically, which has made them much more desirable by much of America. Yeah. Is that, is that accurate? Well, I think so. What Tesla did was just build the best car, period. I mean, it has been rated the best car over and over again by car and driver and blah, 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 and consumer reports. It also happens to be the cleanest car, and it's a luxury car, so everyone wanted it. That's a game changer. Can they translate that into an affordable mass market car? We'll find out with the Model 3. I think so, and I think that'll be a huge game changer that will accelerate adoption to get us to that million cars by 2020. And so will Chevrolet with the, the Bolt, because right now it's a luxury. You know, EVs, Eileen Tut, are still seen as a premium product that a lot of people can't afford. And I think that's where the misinformation is out there. EVs, even today, are affordable, but poor people in general don't buy new cars. So it's not about electric cars. People who are low income can't buy new cars, period. So what we need to do is get as many new cars out there as fast as possible so they move into the used car market, which is where lower income people shop for their cars. And so I think this idea that the car is only for rich people is really not true. And when that argument comes up, it really is, it's a red herring and it's about trying to undermine efforts to get these vehicles out there. We had an executive from General Motors here recently, and I want to get you to respond to what he said. This is uh, Shad Balch from General Motors. There's a history of romance, collusion between the oil industry and the auto industry. Are you, uh, you guys on the skids? Uh, trust me. <laughs> I mean, they're on the rocks. You know, the, the oil industry didn't do us any favors back in when we went through bankruptcy and they were making billions in record profits. So. By no means. I mean, um, they don't scratch our back, and we're not scratching theirs at all. <laughs> we want to build cars and trucks that run on anything but petroleum. Eileen Tut, is that true? Is that what you see in, in uh, Sacramento? Is there yeah. an alliance between oil and the auto? What I see is exactly what Shad just said. No, there is anything but an alliance. The auto companies really do not like the fact that their product mainly runs on one fuel. They would love to see a more diverse fuel market for a lot of reasons. And I would say that is probably the best thing we have going for us is that the automakers would love to build a car that doesn't rely on oil. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Yeah, hi, I'm David Rosenfeld. This whole thing's been about cars. You never mentioned any kind of option in terms of motorcycles, scooters, bicycles, other types of electric vehicles. Sherry Bosher? There are other options. There are electric bikes, electric scooters, there's electric motorcycles. 
the city of Grass Valley just decided to become the first 100% electric bus network, their transportation system. So there's electric buses out there, there's electric garbage trucks, there's electric boats, and there's all kinds of stuff building up and growing, and we'll see more of that. I was at the Innovation Forum in Paris at the UN Climate Summit, and one of the, the hottest things was an electric bike that has a swappable battery. And you don't even have to lock it because there's some GPS thing that if someone takes it, it shuts down. So there's a lot of innovation and excitement going on. I think it's called Gogoro. Eileen Tut- there is a There's a zero motorcycle, so Google zero motorcycles. And, and you great, can go to pluginamerica.org, and there's a page that will show you all the plug-in vehicles available of all kinds. Pluginamerica.org. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hello, my name is Darren Overby. I just wanted to offer a quick testimonial about electric vehicles. I drive a 14-year-old 2002 RAV4 EV. It has 137,000 miles on it. Everything is original except for a $100 capacitor, changed early in its life, and the tires. And there's never been a maintenance light. There's no oil changes, no air filters. All of those maintenance costs that people associate as normal with a gasoline car, you don't do it. And I will never go back to a gasoline car again. What about brakes? The brakes are actually still original as well because wow. of regenerative braking because you're not using okay. pads with friction to stop. They, like, you know, they last a long time too. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, John Tripp. I am a clean energy consultant, and I used to run EV development programs for CalStart. When you're talking about people buying electric cars who are not homeowners, there is obviously the very real problem of people charging at home. I mean, here in San Francisco, the average apartment doesn't have a parking space. So any comment on that? I mean, that's a real issue. So I think that's an issue where there needs to be investment in infrastructure, charging infrastructure in multi-unit dwellings and at workplaces. So it's not that difficult. It's just more costly. And who's going to make the investment? It's probably going to have to be a public investment. If I can just add, depending on the vehicle and the amount of charge that you need to take, it doesn't have to be a complicated system. It can just be an outlet for that matter. Sherry Boschert. In Paris, they have electrical outlets. I saw cars charging right at the curbside. You know, you pull off the street, it's right there. If you think about it, every street light is right by the curb. So this is not like the technology is impossible. With workplace charging and multi-unit charging and other innovative things like putting it at curbside, we'll get there. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Hi, my name is Noel Chrysostomo, and I work for the Public Utilities Commission on Electric Vehicles. My question relates to a story that was broken by the Huffington Post about the Koch brothers organizing against electric vehicles. Apparently, that new effort will attack electric vehicles. What are your thoughts to address these upcoming attacks? Eileen Tut, big oil fighting back. They've been fighting back for a long time, but you're right. The Koch brothers are going to invest in specifically attacking electric vehicles. I thought it was $15 million. It's yeah. the Koch brothers. They could it's do billions be whatever if they want it takes. to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have very, very deep pockets. So I think that is a huge challenge. And the, way, the only way we fight that is for groups like Plug in America, for other organizations, and for the state itself to run its own marketing campaign and really push back and educate the public properly. And so I think... We've got to expect this. We've got to be prepared, and we're going to all have to work together to really make sure that we understand where the message is coming from. Last question. Welcome to Climate One. <clears throat> Rick Reader uh, showed up a couple of years ago with a um, EV, a LEAF, and I went to a colleague and said, look, I've got this nifty climate-friendly vehicle, ecologically friendly vehicle. He says, no, you don't. He says, you've, got a, you've created a big hole in the environment because you won't break even on the environment until you drive it for at least 80,000 miles because of all the manufacturing and mining and all the other industries that go into making that vehicle. Any comments on that? I, I did look into it, and it did seem to have a lot of validity. Union of Concerned Scientists did a right. big report on this life cycle of cars. It takes a lot of energy to make a car. Who's going to tackle that one? Sherry Boschert? There have been multiple, multiple studies about what's called well-to-wheels analysis and life cycle analysis of cars by Argonne National Laboratory, Northwestern National Labs, and plug-in vehicles are cleaner than gas vehicles. When you look at all those things, the mining, the construction, et cetera. If it's about the tailpipe, we need to focus on that. I mean, you can say, is it better? But again, what's the end game here to the extent that, I mean, shoot, right now it's cheaper to buy an efficient internal combustion engine, but what is the end game? And if it's to reduce or eliminate the tailpipe emissions, the CO2, then we need to look at something. 
Greg Dalton has been discussing plug-in performance with Sherry Boschert, co-founder of Plugin America, Eileen Tutt, executive director of the California Electric Transportation Coalition, and Charlie Vogelheim, host of the Motor Trend Audio Podcast. Have you tried a plug-in electric? We'd like to hear about your drive. Our email is climateone at commonwealthclub.org or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. All this clean energy has to get into our homes. That's where the grid comes in. People with rooftop solar systems sell their juice to the electric company over the grid when the sun shines and then buy it back when they need it. That's called net metering. But how much should owners of rooftop solar systems pay to use the grid as a huge battery to hold power from the sunny afternoon until the dark evenings? That question is fiercely debated. What everyone does agree on is that we need a 21st century electric grid for these new times. And Tony Early is leading the charge as CEO of PG&E, Northern California's utility. Here's Greg Dalton and Tony Early discussing the smart grid, plug range, and more. Governor Brown has a plan, 50% renewable energy in the next 15 years. You agree on the direction, but there seems to be some tension around costs and who pays. Let's talk about that. Um, We actually would have preferred a carbon reduction target because the reality is what you want is to reduce carbon, however you can get there. And we had done a lot of work to show if you have a mix of renewables, more energy efficiency, more electric vehicles, you can probably get the optimum from a cost standpoint. But we've also done work to show we can get to 50% renewables. It may cost more than if we said, well, let's do 45%, but we'll do more energy efficiency. But I think the plan certainly is doable. It'll be a combination of solar panels, some, some wind, and maybe new technologies that, that come along. So at the heart of the debate over the cost is there's a pg and proposal, which uh, right now, according to the LA Times, the average savings of a solar homeowner is about $110 a month. That would drop down to 90 So the solar homeowner would save less. And the industry is concerned that's going to hurt solar adoption. Mm -hmm. People are not going to go solar if they're not going to save as much. The issue here is paying to upgrade the grid. We've got to invest in the grid. You've got rooftop solar units dumping electricity in all over. You've got big solar rays and wind farms uh, out in the desert. So it is a much more sophisticated system. So you need much more sophisticated monitoring and devices. You've got to be able to pay for that. And solar users, which actually are very large users of the grid, they're sending power out, they're taking power in, you need to have more sophisticated controls. It's making sure we've got the money to pay for upgrading the grid to a 21st century grid. And the other part of this is to reduce the amount of money that solar owners, uh, homeowners, get paid for the electricity that they send into the grid. Why is that necessary? Because your electric bill is really made up of two big pieces. One, it's the cost of the electricity. And the other is the cost to maintain the electric system out there. And so we'll pay customers for the cost of electricity, and then the differential will be they're paying for their part of the grid upgrades that have to occur to accommodate the sophisticated equipment that's on it. So look, nationally, you headed the Edison Electric Institute. Uh, Where is solar viable, and where do you think that other renewables make more sense? Yeah, well, clearly California, Arizona, you know, the southwest, it's very viable. Wind is, of course, the other big alternative. The upper Midwest, very strong in terms of wind. problem that the upper Midwest has, even though they can generate a huge amount of electricity, they don't have many people, so you've got to build very expensive transmission lines to get it to Chicago, Detroit, wherever you want to send it. And the smart grid, what, what does that mean? What it really is is using technology to make the grid more efficient and more effective in serving customers. So, as you know, in California, we have smart meters, and these are basically meters that have a small computer and transmitter. So these meters tell us a lot about the system. Back before we had them, we didn't know you were out of electricity unless you called us up. And so if there was an outage at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because a storm went through, 
We didn't know until you got home and called us. Well, we discovered with these meters, the meter tells us, hey, I'm out. And so the grid is getting smarter, and I think we're going to see all kinds of innovations as new technologies come along to be able to make the grid smarter and faster and more efficient. And there's a lot of talk about utilities being in a, in a death spiral, that they're challenged, that their customers are now becoming their competitors or suppliers. Does that fundamentally challenge the business model of utilities? It certainly changes the business model. I don't view customers becoming competitors. They're more partners. Utilities don't make any money off the generation. I mean, the cost of generating electricity is just passed through to the customer. So our opportunities are in investing in technologies that can run the grid to accommodate all these new technologies. going. So you're a poles and wires company rather than a build a big billion dollar plant. I think, I mean, there'll still be some large generators on the system. As I used to say when I was in Michigan, you can't start a coal roll steel mill with a solar array. And we'll need big generators on the grid to kind of keep the momentum going. I want to roll a clip. We have a past guest here, Hank Paulson. I want to get your response to what he says about climate as a business risk. Let's listen to Hank Paulson. Climate change, I think, is a very difficult issue to deal with. It is, you know, I think the biggest risk not just to the global ecosystem and the environment. It's the biggest economic risk we face. So that is Hank Paulson, former Secretary of the Treasury, former head of Goldman Sachs, saying that climate is the biggest business risk we face. It it certainly is a very real business risk. You can look at all kinds of examples uh, of that. I mean, agriculture. We're finding today our agricultural customers, a lot of them started complaining about their electric bills were going way up. And we went out, did a lot of analysis and worked with them. Part of it is they've got to drill their wells deeper And they've got to pump water more often. And so they're pumping more, and their pumps work harder because they got to drill deeper. I mean, so that's a business risk for them. So what can we do, what can PG&E do to kind of prepare? With the agricultural uh, customers, we're working with with them on more efficient pumps and motors to minimize the, the impact. On the hydro system itself, we're looking at pretty strong El Nino, which will help. Unfortunately, it'll be more rain than snowpack. And for us, our system is a very low environmental impact system. And so the storage is not a dam. The storage is the snowpack. And without the snowpack, uh, you're not going to be able to generate it. So you make up for that. We'll be working with our solar providers and contracting for more solar projects going forward to get the right mix. It's time for our lightning round, a series of brief yes or no questions for Tony Early. The first one is, your predecessor, Peter Darby, was a champion of clean energy, and he showed leadership by taking PG&E out of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 2009 because it opposes action on climate. He did. Yes, he did that. Do you think that PG&E, do you wish you were part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? This whole thing about, well, because of one thing, you're not going to play ball with them. That's the problem. But you've got to work together. These are hard issues. The California Public Utilities Commission under former President Mike Peavy got a little too cozy with utilities it regulated. Boy, that's a... (laughs) Can I take the fifth on that one? (laughs) The fact that burning fossil fuels is disrupting the climate is an accepted fact in most corporate boardrooms. I think we're getting to a tipping point where I would say yes to that. Even in the good old boys in the coal industry and the utility industry? I can't speak for the coal industry as such, but it clearly is true in in our industry. Fracking for natural gas may have serious impacts on water quality and human health. No, not if you drill the wells right. There was a Johns Hopkins study recently uh, that found a correlation, not a causation, but a correlation between premature birth and proximity to drilling operations, looking at 10,000 pregnancies in Pennsylvania. Before the San Bruno explosion, PG&E should not have diverted funds for gas pipeline safety to pay executive bonuses. That, that just didn't happen. I mean, it, you can question whether the company over the years had invested the right amount in their pipeline business, but it had nothing to do with executive bonuses. The Utility Commission President Mike Picker made that comment. Uh, last one. In your heart, Tony Early, you were rooting for the Detroit Tigers when they played the San Francisco Giants in the 2012 World yes, Series. Yes, I was. <laughs> All right. How do you do? I think you did pretty well. That's the end of our lightning round here with Tony Early. <clears throat>
staying true. We're talking about the future of power with Tony Early, chairman and CEO of PG&E. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, you're on the board of Ford Motor Company, and Ford seems to have not placed as much of a bet on electric vehicles. They kind of doubled down on the internal combustion engine with the, the EcoBoost, which is a turbocharged engine. Some other companies have placed bigger bets on electrics. How do you see, are they going to be a niche or electrics going to be mainstream? In fact, Ford has three or four electric models that have been very successful. I charge my C-Max in a 110 outlet in the garage in our apartment building. And most manufacturers have an electric vehicle strategy. And so we're seeing all kinds of, of stuff out there. The New York Times had a story recently about plug rage, that there's not enough plugs for drivers to plug in and people are yanking their plugs out and getting in scuffles and there's a plug-in etiquette kit where they get tags you can put on someone's plug-in-my-car, this sorts of stuff, which says there's not enough charging. What are you going to do to make charging more accessible so EVs can continue? Well, statewide, we really need to have a big push for charging. All three major utilities in the state, ourselves, SoCal Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, have proposals in front of the Public Utility Commission that significantly up the availability of charging stations. So we've proposed that over the next five years, we'll install 25,000 charging stations in the northern and central California. Now, that's still estimated as only about a quarter of what the market will actually need, but it certainly will be a lot better than where we are now. NRG is an independent energy company, actually one of your large suppliers. They're trying to have their own system for charging There's some debate about who should pay for those chargers, and if you do it, will people who don't drive EVs be subsidizing the EV drivers? Charging stations ought to be part of our grid infrastructure. And so I I think that as we modernize the grid, part of the modernization not only is putting new high-tech monitoring devices, but if we're rebuilding a circuit in a commercial area, we just ought to put the infrastructure for charging stations there. It's not a matter of subsidy. That's what a 21st century grid ought to look like. And who should pay for the juice and how much? Everyone who uses the grid. The interesting thing is, although today the charging stations give electricity to the vehicle owners, in the future it may be the vehicle owners giving electricity back to everyone on, on the grid. Uh, Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant is the last one in this state. 50 years of nuclear in California. Rancho Seco was shut down. San Onofre was shut down. You've applied to relicense Diablo Canyon. It's an oceanfront facility, so there's a tsunami risk. It's near an earthquake fault. You're going to keep running it? So here's a state that is really concerned about carbon emissions, and we've got a plant that produces 2,200 megawatts of carbon-free electricity. From the big-picture standpoint, it makes absolute sense. We'd actually submitted an application before the Fukushima earthquake. It was put on hold. The NRC is reopening that that proceeding. You know, And we haven't made a formal decision yet about whether we're going to throw all our resources behind it. Will we see a nuclear renaissance in the United States? There's, what, five plants under construction now? It is carbon-free, but they are very expensive. The cost of other energy has gone down. cost of nuclear is going up. There are five nuclear plants under construction in the U.S. right now, two in Georgia, two in South Carolina, one in uh, Tennessee. They are very expensive to build up front, talking $8 billion, $10 billion a copy. And yet once you get it built, they're carbon-free, and they're pretty inexpensive, actually, to run it. But I don't see a major construction cycle. And it's unfortunate. Chinese are right now building at least a dozen plants, and every year they bring five, six, seven plants online. Let's talk about San Bruno. $1.6 billion fine for the deadly gas explosion there. Federal regulators said it was a flawed pipe, flawed operations, and flawed oversight. And there's been some criticisms even since then of what PG&E's been doing. So what are you doing to uh, restore trust and faith? It was a huge tragedy. Eight people lost their lives there. Since that time, company has invested billions of dollars in upgrading its natural gas system. And, and we're still not done with it. It, it. This is a huge system. We've got 7,000 miles of high-pressure gas pipeline, tens of thousands of miles of, of local distribution. Clean Power SF is going to offer a choice to San Franciscans like people in Marin and Sonoma, increasingly around the state. Do you support that choice or do you oppose Clean Power SF? Now, our, our position there is we just need customers to understand what choices they are making what the power sources for other, what the relative costs are. We're really not even allowed to market ourselves versus others. So I see one of my lawyers down here looking at me going, (laughs) but 
we don't need to be in the generation business. So if you want to buy from someone else, you can, you can buy from someone else. Because those aggregators like Marin, they, they still use our wires and pay the fees to use the wires. So we're kind of neutral. I want to ask you, what kind of cool technologies you see out there that are really exciting, could really change the way we power our connected lives? we got some really cool technology. It's called LIDAR, so it's laser radar that we can fly over all of our lines and not only tell whether there are any trees that are lying on the lines or too close to the lines, you can actually tell by the amount of photosynthesis in the trees whether it's a healthy tree or not. And it matters because normally trees that fall down into your wires are dying trees, so you want to know which ones are healthy. And you can just fly over our system and know, okay, we got to get that tree, that tree. It's pretty cool technology. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. You referred to nuclear power as renewable or clean energy, meaning no greenhouse gases. But it takes enormous amounts of concrete to build these plants, and concrete is a huge carbon dioxide emitter. So do you take into account the whole life cycle of greenhouse gases when you consider building a nuclear power plant? Well, I think if you're going to build a new plant, you do that analysis. But once the plant's already built, it's there. So when I say it's clean, it's built and delivering electricity without any additional greenhouse gases. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking with Tony Early from PG&E. The price of PV panels has really plummeted in the last few years. Something else that has dropped dramatically is battery cost and specifically home battery storage. And the case of Hawaii is interesting in that the utilities there started putting more regulations on rooftop solar. And my understanding is a lot of homeowners in Hawaii just disconnected from the grid. I'm curious if you see that as a threat, given that you have stated you see yourself more as a transmission utility instead of an energy creation utility. Hawaii has very high electric rates because up until recently, very dependent on imported oil. And so battery storage became more feasible. Not many people would want to pay to have a battery big enough to supply your house and and go off the grid completely. But... How about after Tesla's Gigafactory? If that is successful, will Tesla's Gigafactory drive that cost down so that it could be home storage would be affordable? Our estimates is they're, they're still a number of years away from being able to be completely off the grid. And what you use the battery for is to knock down your peak demand rather than being able to supply your load all the time. But batteries are going to be part of this technology mix. Greg Dalton has been discussing the role of utilities in a green energy future with Tony Early, CEO of PG&E. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. PG&E is a financial supporter of the Commonwealth Club. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.